Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 182 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you by Acoustic Disc, and they just released an incredible collection called We Love Django. It's various artists. Don Sternberg kicks it off and ends it, and uh, everyone Grisman's on there, Jethro Burns, Frank Vignola, just incredible players. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to hearing it. So go to Acoustic Disc and also sign up for their email, and you can get yourself a free song every single week just by signing up. Okay, here we go. Um, For those who aren't on social media, and um, there are a few people I, I that uh, aren't because I've gotten a few emails uh, this week too, checking in. I um, haven't been here the past few weeks, but having some some health issues due to a concussion, and then on top of that, I got shingles uh, like a week later as well. So my vertigo is is out of control. Uh, short backstory real quick in 2018 I suffered a pretty bad concussion that I have permanent tinnitus from and uh, the tinnitus I have is still really really bad tried to play a gig last Saturday afternoon and had to sit down about 20 minutes in due to vertigo and just nausea and had to get a ride home had to cancel my gigs this weekend Uh, and I have uh, uh, some uh, two doctor's appointments this week a CT scan coming up next week the vertigo and tinnitus is still crummy, but I have been just trying to lay low and do nothing, which is what is recommended. But um, I, I really wanted to get this episode out. It weighs on me every single day because I love doing this podcast. It brings me joy. And uh, yeah, I miss doing it. So this has taken a few hours today to edit this episode. And I'm feeling a little seasick, but I got it out. I took breaks. And I'm going to try to get one out weekly again here, too. I have some great interviews lined up. So I want to thank everybody who sent me well wishes, emails, DMs, texts, phone calls. It's been overwhelming. I really, really appreciate it. It's really helped get me through this. As you can imagine, it's, you know, you can't really do anything. You can't read and watch TV or listen to books and stuff. You can't work out, you can't exercise, so all these things that I do to to keep my positive mental attitude have been like gone. So it's been a little depressing and, 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 and sad at times, but super strong support from everybody, and uh, I just, I really appreciate it. So I wanted to let everybody know in case you hadn't seen any of the social media posts, and thank you for sending me emails and checking in. I appreciate it. Also, we'll be getting more merch out there. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to uh, to get everything together and check, but I do have some merch piling up that will get mailed out ASAP, so thank you for that. Um, as you can imagine, those purchases help me, um, especially when I have to cancel gigs. So uh, anyway... Still not 100%, still foggy, looking forward to getting a CT scan just to make sure everything is going going good and all that good stuff, but uh, thank you again. You guys helped me get through this, as did my sponsors. Let's get into the sponsors here. Peghead Nation. Man, what a great lineup of mandolin instructors Peghead Nation has. Joe Walsh, Sharon Gilchrist, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. They got the uh, high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, plenty of tunes and songs to play, and the best part is you can get your first 30 days for free if you go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. 
Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. You can check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Tone Slabs. Head over to toneslabs.com. Get yourself a slab-o-tone. They make some great picks. They just started a pre-order for their Darth Tone picks. They're a black material. I got one sent to me from Frank and David with the mandolins and beer logo on it, and I love it. It sounds incredible. When I do get to play, I've been using that pick uh, at home here, and it sounds fantastic. You can get yourself one as well. If they're doing the pre-orders, go to toneslabs.com. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas. Straight Up Strings, head over to straightupstrings.com. First thing you should do is sign up for their email list. They send out a monthly email that is free. Then you should get some of those strings so you can hear every note of every chord. That is the tagline. There's some incredible science behind it. Roger has also authored just the best mandolin construction manuals out there and has a brand new book about Lloyd Lore coming out soon. We're going to have an interview about that and talk about that. You can head over to straightupstrings.com and get 10% off Books or strings using the code all caps Mando Beer at checkout. Thank you so much to Roger. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and our down to earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year, going into their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get to the episode here with Jim Richter. What a great time I had talking with Jim. This guy's one of the OG online teachers via YouTube. He's got a couple great albums out and uh, just just a great outlook on, on teaching the mandolin. So if you're looking for some inspiration, uh, you can't go wrong following Jim Richter and uh, taking some lessons from him as well. You can go to his website, links below. Uh, any songs that are sampled in here, links below to show you what songs they are and where to buy them. And let's get into this episode with Jim Richter. Just once again, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank everybody for all the support and, and, and patience. And hopefully I can get back on track to doing an episode a week here again. Uh, cheers, everybody. I am happy to welcome my next guest here to the podcast, Jim Richter. Jim, how you doing? Doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for doing it. Thank you also for doing it. You are you're, you're getting ready to head up to uh, go to a camp here and uh, tomorrow, and that's the uh, Mandolin Camp North? Yeah, in Charlton, Mass. So yeah, uh, uh, I started doing it in 2018, so I feel very privileged to be a part of it. Yeah, good for you. That's great. Who else is instructing at the camp? Oh, oh, let's see. Who else? Don Sternberg, Don Julen, uh, Lauren Price Napier, a um, whole bunch of Joe Newberry, a um, uh, whole bunch of people. I've got spacing, spacing names right oh, now, yeah, but no it's, a, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great group. Jacob Joliffe, um, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting some of the other, other people that are up there. 
Oh, that's a, that's a great variety of players. I, I think that's really cool when you see a camp that's really spaced out as far as types of players and the styles that they teach, because I think it just, there's so many on the mandolin. Well, and that, and that's what I appreciate about the camp. Um, I think that they do an excellent job of being able to offer a camp that really appeals to a variety of niche genres. Um, I can say that, you know, it's, if you're not a bluegrass mandolinist, or if your primary interest is not bluegrass, you can sometimes feel lost. Uh, and the very fact that they have a Celtic, you know, Celtic classes, they have blues classes, rock classes, obviously jazz, and then and then a healthy dose of bluegrass across the spectrum from traditional bluegrass through, um, you know, modern progressive bluegrass. That's that's fantastic. It isn't. It, it definitely isn't a one bucks fits all kind of kind of situation up there. And then, of course, you have your camp. This is the tenth year your own mandolin camp. That congratulations, ten. Years. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I think I think really what the amazing thing about it is is that I started the camp in 2011, and I was working on a doctorate in psychology at the time. And I I did my last camp in I think 2015, then to focus on qualifying exams and dissertation, and then I started the camp up again in 2019. So I actually took a a three year break in the midst of that. And what got me interested in doing my own camp again was being invited to teach at Mandolin Camp North because I had taken a break from mandolin stuff to work on dissertation. And then I got the bug to teach again and started doing the camp. So there was actually a hiatus. So I just feel it feels very nice that I didn't let it go or die on the vine that that started it back up. And now it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. That just shows your love of the instrument, you know? (laughs) I, it's it's the love of the instrument, but it's the love of teaching. I mean, that is where I think that is where my passion. I mean, I think some people are performance people. For me, it's really teaching. And one of the things that I've really focused on is being accessible to adult learners and individuals that don't necessarily fit in an easy box uh, and maybe feel uncomfortable or question their motivation for playing. So, you know, if I can keep someone playing the instrument and enjoying the instrument and not going, I'll never be Chris Thiele, therefore there's no sense of playing, which <laughs> nobody's ever going to be Chris Thiele, um, then, I, then, then I feel very satisfied. So, yeah, it's uh, a lot of it was just wanting to get back into the teaching of the instrument. I really love how in your in your description and in, on your uh, bio here, the the best thing I thought on there was you're, you're geared towards adult learners and the barriers that keep them perpetual beginners. I think that's great. Well, and, and that, that is, that's kind of a hot topic in that I, I don't really subscribe to the idea of beginner, median, or beginner, intermediate, and expert. I mean, I, I know those things exist, and, but, but, you know, I think I, I come, you know, from a rock background, then a blues background, and bluegrass was in there too, because I started playing bluegrass back, banjo back in my teens. But, you know, if, if you look at someone like Neil Young, I would consider Neil Young just kick ass a thousand times over. And he's he's a badass songwriter. Uh, I think he's a badass singer and he's definitely just a terrific rock guitar player. But he's not he's not Yankee Malmsteen. You know, <laughs> right, he's, not, right. he, he's not Steve Vai. But that, that that somehow doesn't make him less expert. And and for someone who really comes at music from really a genre perspective, either Americana or blues or rock or, or, or even like old time bluegrass. Um, 
it's not really a virtuosity. There's virtuosity, but it's definitely a virtuosity that's very specific to the genre. And so sometimes I think there are unfair comparisons. Like you see the ubiquitous uh, thread on Facebook or Mandolin Cafe where the world's greatest mandolin player, who are the best mandolin players? Like really, who who are the best mandolin players? Like <laughs> I, you know, we were talking before before this before we started talking formally in this interview about Joe K. Walsh. I love Joe. Love Joe's playing. He's one of my favorite mandolinists, and definitely have felt privileged to be around him a time or two. And I mean, he is he is a complete player across the board, but it doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't have things to say as well. And that was a conversation that Joe and I had about just trying to understand, like, really what makes, you know, somebody really complete musically. And that's really more my mission is to help people create the music that they want to create on the mandolin. That may not be virtuosic um, contest type mandolin playing, uh, but it should be something that really touches into their spirit and makes them want to play the instrument. And, and, and so that's what the camp's about. It really is trying to help people stay in touch with the instrument and not do faulty comparisons to or improper comparisons to individuals they're never going to be. It's, it's interesting you say that about Neil Young because I also think Neil Young is a great singer. But if you were, if you were to look at you know some sort of the greatest singer list of all time, I mean, you can't, you can't compare – uh, Sam Cooke and Neil Young. It's completely different. No, like, you know no, what I mean. No. I mean, they're both great singers. I mean, some people might not like either one of them, and it's yeah, the 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 best in the world is just so ridiculous to me. You know, yeah, you know that's yeah. great. It, and I think that's it. Kind of strips the fear when when you have no labels like expert or it's advanced. It, it, it's funny that you talk about things being scary because. Years, I mean, this is 20 years ago. I was teaching banjo, three-finger Scruggs-style banjo in a local music store in Bloomington, Indiana. And I had a student who was like a big, burly kind of Harley rider. I mean, he was he long beard, had 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 the colors, the whole bit. I mean, he was, he fit, he, you know, your, your, you know, the kind of stereotypical vision of a Harley rider, he fit that. Very nice guy. So, you know, not, not saying anything about Harley rider, just talking about the look. And he comes in, he wants to learn how to play banjo. And so I'm working, he says he wants to learn Scrug style banjo. So I'm trying to teach him some stuff. He comes in for the next lesson, very sheepishly goes, uh, I didn't work on anything. And I said, oh, that's okay. And we start, we start talking. And as, as we're talking and talking about the material, I realized he didn't even know some of the most basic songs. And what I found out was, is that because he loved the sound of the, and this is when in preparing for today's conversation, this was something I was thinking about. He was more interested in the sound of the banjo, but not necessarily the repertoire. And so he actually knew nothing about Earl Scruggs other than Beverly Hillbillies. He just knew that he just knew that he liked the sound of the banjo. He didn't listen to bluegrass. He didn't particularly even like bluegrass, but he loved the sound of the banjo. And I asked him, you know, it's very much, a, I'm a therapist and it's very much a therapist kind of question. It's like, when you when you envision yourself sitting around the campfire playing the banjo, what is it that you see yourself doing? And it was basically strumming the banjo, singing Kumbaya. It was something like that. And I said, well, then we don't need to learn three-finger rolls. If all you want to do is do kind of Pete Seeger, accompany yourself while you're singing and you're hearing a strum, then you don't need to do that. So he was someone who was probably at high risk for dropping off the instrument 
because he was not connected to what he thought the um, what the mode of instruction needed to be. Because if I were some, if I was someone who just kept trying to force Scruggs on him, and that wasn't his interest, it wasn't his passion, it wasn't even what he listened to. In my mind, there's, or you know, I believe there's a high likelihood that he would probably stop playing rather than he enjoys the sound of the instrument. How can we, how can we leverage that? Wow. If all music instructors took that angle, we'd probably have a lot more, you know, musicians of all levels everywhere. I mean, I think I, I know more people who quit because they didn't like instructors and just, you yeah. know, like when I was in high school, <clears throat> people who wanted to play guitar and they, there was like one particular instructor in my hometown in particular that just, just so out there and weird and mean you know that everybody just quit you know so it's it's always surprised when i met people who would be like oh i took lessons with so and so i'm like wow and you're still playing <laughs> that's great yeah there's there's a there's a student that i have right now and he is getting instruction from someone who's really a fiddle player or maybe not even a fiddle player maybe more formally a violinist and um he's half he's being given a fiddle tune book being made, he's not even allowed to look at tablature, and that can be debated, but he's having to learn how to read music, read standard notation from a fiddle book of fiddle tunes he doesn't even know. And that, and that's how he's going to learn mandolin. So he, he came to me. He still has the other mandolin instructor to, quote, unquote, get the formal mandolin trained. But he comes to me going, can you teach me this John Mayer song? <laughs> and so we, so we sit down and we put it on and we figure out, okay, what's, what key is it in? And let's figure out the chord structure. And, okay, this is what the guitar's doing. How could you do something like this on the mandolin? Now, obviously, you need a little bit of grit under you to be able to do that. You've got to have some knowledge and some skill and some familiarity with the instrument. But he's, he doesn't want to play fiddle tunes. And I love fiddle tunes, so I'm not besmirching fiddle tunes at all. But there's a lot of people who love the sound of the mandolin. Fiddle tune is not fiddle tunes are not necessarily what call them to the mandolin. And there are times where it almost feels as a mandolin player, unless you know, you know, X number or X particular fiddle tunes, you almost don't have a place in a jam or or, or the like. So again, um, that's what this camp's about is trying to give a space to those people. It's not in any way a rejection or a condemnation or saying anything bad about my brethren doing other camps. It's just trying to create a space where those people feel more comfortable. Cause sometimes uh, like I went to some of the most early, well, years and years and years ago, um, uh, building an association with Mike Compton and doing some camps. And then I went to the earliest Monroe camps when they were in Owensboro. And I can remember guys coming with very nice mandolins who never pulled a mandolin out of a case. They didn't jam. They didn't really do anything in class. They carried the mandolin because they felt so uncomfortable playing the mandolin in front of other people. So one of the very first things, the very first class that of, of, of my camp, people are made to play a tune. And we go around in a circle. You're asked to play a tune. It is not the tune you've been practicing. It's the tune when you're sitting quietly on the couch and you're just enjoying the mandolin. What do you doodle on? What do you play? And you're, you take your – everybody in the room provides you feedback, positive feedback. And the, all, all you can do is just say thank you. You can't go, oh, I could have played that better or anything like that. And there was one gentleman who came there who super high anxiety, super nervous, and was scared to death of ever pulling out his mandolin. That very first exercise I saw on Facebook the next day that he had posted on there, oh, my God, family, I actually played. I played in front of people and I didn't die. And, and then the rest of his camp was, was super, super fun for him because we got, we got that out of the way at the very beginning. You know, 
we're all go- we're all going to expose ourselves, and then after that, we're just going to have fun. I think if people like, I also have that anxiety, and I think almost almost all the people I've interviewed on this podcast have some sort of that anxiety of playing in front of other people or playing in front of people who are quote unquote better than them. I think it's a natural thing. I think if more people realize that that's, you know, that's kind of like a natural feeling for people, even at the highest level of playing, it might, might help. But I love how you do that and just really get them to open up right away. That's wonderful. Well, it, I mean, it's, it, it really just is a reflection of my own anxiety. I have major anxiety and the anxiety comes from the, the fact that there's always imposter syndrome. A lot of us have it yeah, where, I you know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to Mandolin Camp North and there are all these great instructors, tons of great people, Sharon Gilchrist and, you know, the, the two Dons and, and all of them. And, um, you know, I, 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 I sit back and I go, well, where's my place in that? I'm not the fastest player. Um, you know, I don't, I, I've not written EMD or, <laughs> you know, some, some, quint, some quintessential mandolin tune, nothing like that. Like, who am I? And I just always remind myself, like, I'm, you know, I'm Jim. I have a very particular voice. There's nobody who can do what I do. And there are going to be people who listen to me and go, eh, not really interested. And then there are going to be other people who go, man, I really dig what that guy's doing. And, and that's the that's the point of it. You're not going to please everybody. And if you get caught up in the contest of I got to be as good as or better than this person, then you're really not focused on the music. You're focused on 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 comparisons and status or something like that. So a lot of what I'm doing in the camp is the, a lot of the same stuff I do for myself just to kind of kind of reduce my own anxiety about playing in front of other people. It's great to hear. And I think it's great for people to hear. And it's interesting if you were to take like, again, this is kind of labeling, but if you were to take the broad spectrum of Bill Monroe on one side, who some, you know, people are like the greatest. And then you take Chris Thiele, put him at the other end of that spectrum. Also, people consider the greatest, not saying either one isn't, but they're both like masters at each end of their spectrum. And both of them have people who don't like listening to them, you know? Yeah. And And if you think of it that way, we're like, well, there's there's a lot of middle ground in between those <laughs> between those two players, you know. It, it it is amazing, you know, because I love Feely, you know, I I love Nickel Creek and I love Punch Brothers and everything that Chris has done. Um, I love everything, especially everything Monroe does. I'm, I'm I'm more on the Monroe side of the the spectrum, but but you know, there's everybody's got something can contribute. And I had a conversation with someone the other day who's. Who goes, you know, like, I just don't understand where someone says, I don't like hip hop or I don't like country. There's nothing to learn there. or I don't like rock or I don't like this. There is something of value in every genre of music. You know, I can think of I can't remember the name of the song, but there was an excellent song on one of the uh, Carolina Chocolate Drops albums. That is basically a hip hop beat with Rhiannon singing over top of it, fiddle in the background. And it's just the most brilliant thing ever. And it, and it just shows how you can pull something from a variety of genres and bring it into your own and it fits i mean that's that's what i've tried to do with the rock and blues stuff um you know there's a place for it on the mandolin it's just a matter of being sensitive to the instrument and figuring out how to make it work well he was scheming i was beaming and his beamer just beaming can't believe that i call my man cheating so i found another way to make him so I went to Neiman Marcus on a shopping spree, uh, and on the way I grabbed Soleil and me. 
I mean, look at REM. Peter Buck, I'm not yes. sure yes. how much of a mandolin player he was. I mean, that that's definitely not the most in-tune mandolin on a song, but I'd, I'd be hard-pressed <laughs> to find a more... And uh, a song that had mandolin that sold more albums, I mean, even more than Rod Stewart's Maggie May, I would guess, that Out of Time album, yeah. I think it's 10 million records. And there's a guy who just was like, oh, I'll play mandolin on this song, and, and there you go, you know? Well, between between those two, I, I would hazard to say between those two songs, that's those two songs have probably inspired more people to play mandolin than 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 people who are professional mandolinists you know and that that and that's what i was saying earlier about a lot of people get into it from the sound of the instrument and i think we have to be i think we have to we have to understand that and we have to value it and we have to respect it that if i'm teaching someone how to play they want to learn how to play fiddle tunes i will teach them how to play fiddle tunes to the best of my ability and show them pick theory and all the things that are necessary to be able to do it but if someone comes in and say, hey, I just, I'm just interested in learning these John Mayer songs. I have a banjo student right now. I started teaching banjo again. And he wanted to learn how to play um, uh, Ants Marching by, um, yeah, uh, oh, oh, man, now I'm space. Dave Matthews. Dave Matthews. Because he's in a band and they're doing the song. So he was trying to figure out how do I work out Ants Marching. So I, we sat down and figured out how to play like Dave Matthews on the banjo, which, of course, Bela's done it. He said it with Dave. Dave Matthews and all that, but it's not the first time anyone's done a banjo on that song. But I mean, that's what I'm about. Like that, that's actually what gets my blood just up and boiling. Like seeing the excitement on someone's face when they go, my gosh, the sound I have in my head, I can actually do it. There is actually a pathway for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's going back to the camp. That's, that's what the camp's about. It's just trying to tap into people's passion for, the the instrument and non non traditional genres on the mandolin and and you know how can you do funky things on it? You you mentioned Maggie May and um, uh, losing my religion is you know probably getting more people into mandolin. What yeah. was it that got you into mandolin? Oh yeah, mine mine is more of a predictable story. Um, <laughs> the I mean probably the the first mandolins I ever heard were Homer were um, uh, Jethro Burns and Homer and Jethro. And uh, probably uh, Dan Seals as part of Seals and Crofts, or Dash. I'm not Dan Seals, but Dash Crofts as part of Seals and Crofts. My dad in Homer and Jethro. You know, I turned 55 this coming month, and he was a baby in the early 40s. And the first musicians he ever saw were Homer and Jethro at the Ripley County Fair in Indiana in like 1948. You know, something like that. So he was really in the Homer and Jethro. So I heard Jethro Burns throughout my childhood. And I heard Seals and Crofts. My dad had every Seals and Crofts album. But what actually got me inspired to play was seeing Newgrass Revival for the first time. So saw Newgrass Revival on uh, Austin City Limits in 1983, the Reformed Revival with Pat Flynn and Bela Fleck. Loved Bela. Immediately got a banjo and started playing banjo when I was 16. And loved Sam Bush and got a mandolin and tried to learn how to play mandolin, but I was more interested in playing the banjo. And the funny thing with the mandolin is, is that... In southeastern Indiana, in the mid to early 80s, 
I, I did not, we didn't have anybody who were really mandolin players down there. And I didn't know anybody who played mandolin. So I was almost always in my teens, almost always in a bluegrass band where there were two banjoists. And the agreement always was you get to play a set on banjo and then you play mandolin and vice versa. So mandolin was the instrument you got stuck on. <laughs> and, and so I played in this band. And when I got to play banjo, I tore it up. And, and then I just hacked my way through on an old Gibson A man, teens, a mandolin, uh, that we traded back and forth. But, um, it would have been it would have been Sam Bush. To me, Sam Bush is the prototypical rock mandolinist. I, I can't listen to Sam. I mean, Sam is steeped in fiddle tradition, traditional bluegrass and all that. But man, for the way he plays rhythm, the way he approaches things, it's always a rock and roll attitude. And um, it was probably Sam, but I was also into Hot Rise, so loved Tim O'Brien, uh, was into Nashville Bluegrass Band, loved Mike Compton. Um, uh, and definitely the seldom scene, love the seldom scene and, and John Duffy, um, but also the banjoists and all those bands as well, because I was primarily playing banjo. But um, those those were the early the early influences. I really started playing it seriously, probably fast forward 10 years when um, I started doing a blues duo with Gordon Bonham. And Gordon used to play with Yank Rachel uh, when Yank was alive. Oh, no way. And um, yeah, and so I, I'm based out of Indianapolis. That's where Yank lives from the late 1950s on. This is where he's buried. Uh, but he uh, he played with Yank, and we started doing a duo, and I started playing mandolin as a part of that. Um, you know, I knew Gordon for a long time. A lot of my electric guitar playing Sounds a bit like Bonham's because, you know, I used to go, he's about 10 years older than me, and I used to go every place that he was playing and, you know, learned a lot about electric guitar player from watching him. So we're very close in the way that we approach guitar. And the way I play mandolin really does come from guitarist's point of view. I really had to try to teach myself a lot of like traditional kind of mandolin stuff because initially a lot of what I did on the mandolin was taking everything I knew on guitar and flipping it around in my head that so I could play it on the mandolin. And then that worked with Gordon because it synced in a lot more with the way that he approached guitar. And so it worked better in a duo situation. Um, that's kind of the evolution of all that. You you guys put a DVD out like years ago too, like a live DVD, didn't you? We did. It was, yeah, like 19 or 2003, 84 called Hoot Nanny. But yeah, just a, just a DVD, self-produced DVD of a bunch of traditional old-time country or blues tunes. It's so funny, not funny, but like you're kind of, you're like uh, the pre, I told you before we talked, like you're like the pre-David Benedict of Internet Mandolin. Like I remember you're the one of the very first people like when YouTube came around and I was playing mandolin, started YouTubing mandolin, like you had some great stuff. And it really, being from the Midwest myself as well originally, I love Zeppelin and 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 some and blues and, and you were doing both those things and showing how to do it on mandolin i'm like oh my gosh and you have two incredible albums that also came out in 2013 um intuition one's blues and intuition's one more mandolin based or mandolin acoustic based i should say 
Yeah, those those were, <laughs> and, and in all transparency, those were both a desperate attempt to fund the doctorate. Oh, no um, way, really? So I, it's, it's, yeah, so I had all kinds of backlogged material and things that I wanted to finish and people, things I was supposed to do with other people. Um, the only one that the only the only one that I was able to do with somebody else other than my brother and some people locally was there is a, a cut that Mike Compton and I did on there uh, that's supposed to be kind of an imaginary. Like, what would a conversation been like between Bill Monroe and Elmore James? And in my mind, they're, they're cut of the same cloth. It's just you change the tempo. You change the way the shuffle was done. You know, Compton or Compton. Well, Compton, sure. But Monroe has that kind of old time fiddle shuffle. And then, of course, there's more of that Chicago shuffle on the part of Elmore James. tune we he and i recorded like back in 2008 so it was like years of amassing this stuff and various levels of completion and then i got accepted to a doctoral program in psychology figuring out how am i going to pay for this when i've got a family <laughs> and all this stuff and so i i love puns as bad as they can be intuition the i dash the n dash tuition tuition was supposed to be help me pay my tuition <laughs> yeah but that's that's how those came about but the the blue album the blues album really just reflects my love of blues and electric guitar and blues bass mandolin the other one is more of the you know the very first tune on the out al- that particular album is really a homage to dog music um and there's there's a there's a butch Baldus, butch Baldessari had passed away and i wrote a tune for butch on there But yeah, that was that was more of the the straight ahead. Like this is this is how I conceptualize mandolin music, and then the other ones like this is this is the blues side of things. Butch Baldessari, uh, I don't think enough people. I mean, people who need to know know about him. But again, just another incredible player that passed away uh, way too soon, and I don't think still doesn't get his uh, due. And he's got some just gorgeous music out there that everybody should check out. I think. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know Butch well. I only met him on a couple occasions. I think where I became interested in his music uh, was through Will Kimball, and it was Will that really introduced me. He was actually the person who literally introduced me to to Butch, but introduced but introduced me to the music. And there's actually um, a tune that I wrote that Will and I do on the the road home, which is the Butch Baldessari tribute CD that came out shortly after after he passed.
sense. But yeah, love love what Butch did because he understood when he played traditional, he played traditional. He respected the form. And he did that with whatever he played, you know, and that and that's what I respect so much, you know, because I do. It does kind of burn me sometimes when I hear traditional tunes that I just absolutely like over the waterfall or something like that. Something that's just beautiful in its own right, that then is taken to some type of weird extreme. <laughs> and and I understand and I understand that. I mean, it's like in jazz, taking a, a tune like all of me and it becomes a standard and becomes the thing to jam over. But I. For the fiddle tunes, I, I love fiddle tunes, but I really love the fiddle tunes very pure and not a whole lot of improvisation on them and, and keeping them straight because I just love that tradition. And that's what I heard with Butch. If Butch played a fiddle tune like St. Anne's Real, he played it just like St. Anne's Real. But then, you know, if he took off on some progressive thing, he could just tear it up. And I just I loved how he could respect the form and really play play to the form. His new classics album, I thought, was just incredible yes. as well. One of my favorites to this day. So uh, how do you how do you balance? I think this is a very common thing because obviously you 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 have a very busy work life and music work life. How do you balance the two? Because I think that's something that a lot of people have to probably struggle with is finding the time to to get better or just to play. I I I think for me I look at it as self care. So um, you know if someone so. In my, in my, you know, at least until I retire, I think I've got about three years till I can like retire and then go back to doing music full time, which I did 30 years ago. And it's, it's been kind of here and there since then is, um, you know, I, I help run a community mental health center in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I'm a licensed therapist and the job is pretty stressful. I don't do any clinical work anymore. It's all administrative, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure and um, a lot to do as a director of a mental health center. And you're always trying to chase any changes in Medicaid, any changes in health care, uh, trying to stay in front of all that to keep your keep your mental health center going and, and clients, you know, serve the way they should be served. Uh, and for me, because I am a therapist, I'm very, very concerned about self-care. And for me, it is absolutely music. It has to be music. And anybody who knows me, uh, my wife of 30 years, could definitely tell you that it's I, I'm walking around my room right now and I don't see anywhere. There's nowhere that I look that I don't see something music related, either some poster of a concert I promoted years ago, um, a 1931 National Triolian in the corner, some mandolins, records, all that. So for me, it could be playing the mandolin. It could be reading about the mandolin. It could be reading the latest issue of Fretboard Journal or Bluegrass Unlimited. Um, listening to a, a, a new album, like I just got the Nickel Creek Celebrants album and the, the latest Sam Bush, John Hartford album, and, you know, trying to understand what's going on in those things. So all my free time, when it's not spent, like, truly focused on family, it's just, it's focused on music. And that is the self-care that keeps me going in the mental health practice. Uh, because it's actually funny. Um, I, I really... You know, as 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 well as I have progressed in the mental health field, um, I, I still don't quite see it as my vocation. I almost see that as my avocation, as my hobby, and not really who I am as the musician. And I think that I think the people at work have realized that too, especially when my vacations are almost always music related. Like every time I take a vacation, they know I'm teaching a camp, going to perform somewhere, or something like that because. I really don't take time off for other purposes. 
Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but it's, you know, it's, if I conceptualize this as self-care, then there's always time for it. That absolutely answers it. And I think it would probably, you know, behoove people to actually maybe think of it that way too, as opposed to, to, to making it stressful of like, oh, I need to practice and I just, I don't have time to do it. But if you think of it more of like a, a something for you to relax and be Zen <laughs> or, or just something to forget about everything else that's going on and, and why you play. I think that's really, really important as opposed to looking at it as like, Oh, I didn't pick it up yesterday. I probably won't pick it up today. It's just, you know, I'll get to it eventually. And as opposed to making it just part of a routine that you do, I think it's really important as well. You're, you're right. I mean, it's like exercise is that if you make it a part of a routine, then it's not a chore. Um, and, and for me, I discovered, you know, I play, I play several instruments. It could definitely be said that I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. I play, you know, I play them well. Um, I'm, I'm not going to knock anyone's socks off with, with any of them. But, you know, if after a while I start getting frustrated on the mandolin and don't feel like I'm really connecting with it, I'll pick up the electric guitar and play it for a while. Or I'll pick up an acoustic guitar and work on going through the whole, you know, the whole Norman Blake repertoire and trying, trying to work on my flat picking or I'll, I'll build a guitar. Like I, I, I taught myself this past summer how to rewind pickups and I was rewinding, rewinding strap pickups for a, for a vintage strap that I built. Uh, the beginning of the pan, I, I have a, 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 an undergraduate degree in audio engineering and, and know some about electronics and beginning of the pandemic. Um, one of my sons and I sat down and built an amplifier. So I conceptualize music very broadly beyond just pulling up the mandolin uh, because I don't want to get frustrated. Um, as long as I keep something going that's musically related, writing a tune or, or doing whatever, I feel good, you know? And it means sometimes like here recently, I've not been gigging out as a mandolinist. I've been gigging out as a bluegrass banjo player, which is something I hadn't done in 30 years, but that's pretty cool too, because it gives me a reason to pull out my banjo and work on tunes and, and then go out and do three hours with a heavy banjo around my neck, trying to, you know, keep up in a keep up in a bluegrass band. Which, I mean, it's all fun. I mean, it just it keeps me on my toes in a variety of ways, and I feel connected to music without getting overly frustrated. When you work on tunes, uh, that was one of the things I've always loved, and you've talked about it a little bit with the, uh, like talking about the student with wanting to learn John Mayer on a, you know, a non-John Mayer instrument, and you do it with the Zeppelin tunes that weren't necessarily, boy, what was the one? Maybe the Rain Song you did a version of? The Rain Song. Yeah, yeah, just great. So I'd love to just kind of hear how you approach like learning non-traditional bluegrassy songs. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, I, 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 I try to, like, like, like say like for Rain Song, I tr if, if Jimmy Page had written this on mandolin, how would he have played it? And so I, you know, I listen, I listen to the guitar and I, I, you know, I either know the guitar part or I, I teach myself the guitar part and that helps, you know, because then I have a, a more kind of nuanced understanding of what's going on and how, how tones are passing. I'm, I'm much more of a visual guy. I am not, I am not one of those guys that it's going to be able to like rattle off intervals to you. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can hear them. I can hear them, but I'm not, you know, I'm not like some dudes who, who are more formally trained, who could, who could, who could sing a perfect third from something or a perfect fourth or whatever. Um, but I, I'm very much into patterns. I'm into shapes. I'm into the visual component and, you know, like when I'm playing guitar and I see, and I think that's the way Paige was writing too, is that 
if you look like here recently, I did a, a pretty thorough transcription of um, the Wanton song that's off of um, Physical Graffiti. And um, it's, it's almost like immigrant song with this jazz passage kind of in it. And when, when I look at the chords that he's doing in the bridge, he's really just moving fingers around. And it, it becomes, it, I mean, that's self-evident. I mean, you change a chord, you move fingers around. But it's, it's the, he's doing, he's doing this jazz progression where you've got one ascending line and one descending line. So the, the, the bottom part of the chord's ascending, the top part of the chord is descending. And it's just a visual thing. So I try to understand what's going on within the tune. And then on the mandolin, I'm trying as close as I possibly can to capture the spirit of the original tune try as much as I can to use the original voicings. Um, you know, obviously a guitar, if it's guitar-based music, has a potential for six notes and a full chord. We've got four. Um, so I try to pick out which are the essential notes, which are the essential tonal qualities of the chord that, you know, are, are what's essential uh, to be able to convey, be able to convey the melody or, you know, harmonically what's going on. Um, I, I try to alter my uh, right hand to, you know, um, uh, more approximate the sound of what's happening with the guitar. Uh, there are things that I do, like for rhythmic things, I, I do a lot of, um, of, of chords that don't have the third in them, uh, like power chords on an electric guitar. So if I'm trying to do something really heavy, like a back in black, then I am doing chord voicings that have no third in them and sometimes like a suspended fourth or an add nine or something like that to give it a little bit of a unique quality that lets you know you're not in bluegrass anymore <laughs> um and get and give it a fuller sound and so it, it really is my my attempt to try to as much as possible to be to be respectful of the original tune not the bluegrass whatsoever it's not a picking on tune or anything like that um that this is in itself, a very bona fide homage to the original source material. And it really is thinking through all those things of how do you, how do you play guitar lines on a guitar or on a mandolin that have a whole bunch of hammer-ons and pull-offs and weird syncopations and don't easily fit into pick theory. I've, I've had this discussion quite a bit um, where, you know, if you follow pick theory, like in, in, in doing fiddle tunes, Downstroke is on your downbeat, upstroke's on your upbeat. And that doesn't always work in blues. And it doesn't always work in rock and roll. And and sometimes you've got an up when you would think it's a down and vice versa. And that's also part of it too, is trying to go with the line and wherever that takes my right hand. And sometimes it should it doesn't it doesn't land where you think it's going to land. And it's the same thing if you're playing electric guitar. If you're playing electric guitar and doing a whole bunch of hammer-ons, fast hammer-ons, pull-offs, you're doing something like Dazed and Confused or you know, communication breakdown by Led Zeppelin. Jimmy's not thinking about what direction this pick's going. He's just <laughs> thinking how can, he's just thinking, how can I get through this line as quickly as possible? And sometimes that ends up with some weird, you know, sometimes this playing is not as fluid as you would hope it would be. It's kind of Kind of here and there, uh, like Neil Young. I mean, it's but it's more the power of it, and and that's also what I'm concerned about is the emotion of it, and making sure that emotion doesn't come through, and that I'm not sanitizing it in some way to to say, hey, Rain Song, you're now a mandolin piece. You've got to be X. 
I really tell the mandolin, mandolin, this is rain song. You gotta, you gotta play like rain song. And, you know, it sounds kind of silly, but um, I mean, that's kind of the way I think through a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. That's funny, Neil Young and, and, um, you know, Neil Young and Jimmy Page, they have a lot in common. I always say this to like uh, with Bill Monroe and like Hendrix, it's not, it's more emotion sometimes than perfect, right. than a perfect solo. There's going to be plinks and sometimes trying to transcribe a uh, Bill Monroe solo, note for note, man, I can't, Mike Compton can do it. Uh, he's incredible, but I'm like, holy cow, how do you, I, you know, I just, I just want to try to get through this tune, <laughs> you know? I, 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 I will, I will, I'm going to give major props to Mike. So I love Mike. Love him, love him, love him. One of my favorite people in the world. And glad that he's teaching at the the 10th camp because really I wouldn't be doing a lot of this without Mike. Um, You know, way long time ago when I decided to take mandolin seriously, you know, I reached out to Mike and said, hey, come to Bloomington. I'll put on a concert for you. I'd love to to have you do a workshop at a concert. And whether it was David Long or David Greer or whoever, um, you know, I tried to see Mike as much as I could and, and learn from him. Mike was the first person I ever knew to transcribe anything. And I, and I talked to him quite a bit about that back early on. Like, how did you learn how to do this? And he'd talk about Hartford or whatever. Um, but all the transcription stuff I've done, it is, it is, it is squarely on Mike Compton's shoulders. Um, because he, he made me see that it was possible to do it if you weren't someone who was formerly musically trained. Because I kind of saw it as being within that space. Like, you had to be a music school guy to do that and um, saw that you didn't need to be. Um, and uh, and the same thing with the camps. I mean, I learned a lot from just asking him to come up to do a house concert or something like that to figure out how to do those things on my own and how do you teach mandolin material. So I have to I have to give a lot of respect to him because a lot of the way that I think about things and learned how to do things was really just from spending time around him. He's great, man is that transcription book that came out with the, the last Monroe album, the rare and fine that that's just amazing transcription. And that, and that's what got me. That's why I brought it. When you mentioned Mike, why I wanted to bring that up was just to recognize there was a lot of work put into that. It is not easy to transcribe Monroe and it is especially hard to go back. Cause I, I I'm doing a class on Charlie McCoy at Mandolin camp North to go back and listen to old 78s and try to pick out with clarity what the mandolin is doing in the background behind a guitar and a vocal. Incredibly <laughs> hard. It's yeah. incredi- and so you, you have to interpolate and, and interpret and, and make your best guesses around, this is the way the guy kind of plays. I'm assuming he's playing like this. I know Mike's had to do a lot of that. That's a lot of back and forth on a cassette, listening to things that aren't always of high fidelity. So major props to him because – that book, that book's incredible and represents a lot of work. If people don't know how long it takes to transcribe tunes and write that stuff out, it takes a lot of time. And I really think that there are times that people don't put, don't value that as much as they really should. That's a lot of man hours that goes into something like that. So incredible, incredible book. And he does every version of the song. Like if yes. he learned sitting on top of the world and transcribed it, he didn't just learn, you know, one version of it. He's got pretty much every recorded version of it. It's it's in, he's incredible. Shout out to Mike Compton. <laughs> yeah, no, he he does the whole thing. I mean, he'll tell you, well, this, this is Monroe's version from 1947. This is Monroe's <laughs> version from 1958. This is 1962. And the thing is, that is why that is why I don't think there's anyone. I mean, he is the foremost expert on Monroe on Monroe mandolin playing. He is the guy because. Monroe's playing does change. I mean, from mid 40s 
to the early 90s, you know, it, those are definitely different periods. And that 70s master's, master of bluegrass period is way different than, you know, um, uh, early 60s Monroe. And he, he understands it all. And that, that, that's, what I, that's what I would aspire to be. I mean, I would love to be, to have that level of um, just expertness and in, in understanding something. I mean, that, that's really um, inspiring. Let's talk a little bit about some of your instruments. Um, yeah, I would love to know what your main axe is. Let's see, uh, my main my main instrument right now, um, a 2008 Kimball A5. Uh, that was of the same batch that Andy Statman's first Kimball came out of. Excellent, excellent, excellent sounding A5. I actually made the mistake of selling it, and it was gone for six years. And then I found it again in 2001. I actually put up an ad on to, on the cafe and said, hey, someone, if you have my mandolin, sell it back to me. And they sold it back to me. Wow. Um, it, it had gone through like three owners or something like that by then. So 2008 Kimball A5. Uh, I've got a 2009 Kimball Octave mandolin. That's killer, two point. A 2005 Kimball FO, which is an F4, which is a just a bad mandolin. It's It's great. And to some degree, I think it was specced around like a Gilchrist F4, kind of like maybe like Mike Compton's. Uh, those are the mandolins. And I think to connect with you, uh, I have owned two Duffs in the past. I had a 2001 X-Brace and I had a 1995. But Paul has just finished building one for me. And it's, I was hoping it would be here by now, but I would imagine sometime in the next two or three weeks, um, I'll have a 2023 Duff and that'll That'll be that'll probably be the main one along with the A five. Man, congratulations! Yeah, I've seen yours, and it it, it it's a pretty bad mandolin. I I love it. Uh, Paul makes beautiful instruments, man. And and to to give give you know again, I I'm always about trying to to show gratitude and 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 honor other people. Um, a year and a half ago, I, I had money to burn, and I was talking to Will Kimball. And I, and I was talking about wanting to get an F5, and I was considering a whole variety of different options, names that people would recognize. And uh, Will's like, you ought to have Paul build you one. And Will could have easily said, hey, I'll build you one. And that wasn't the case. He's like, hey, talk to Paul. Paul, Paul will build you one. And I knew, like I said, I've owned two of Paul's instruments before. I'd had you know, some familiarity with Paul before I'd met him before. And you know, he was definitely a known entity. Um, but then talk to Paul and Paul has built me, um, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of it on Facebook, but it is, it's, it's a, it's a beauty and a half. It is exactly what, it's exactly what I asked for. Magnificent one piece back, you know, the whole, the whole bit and, um, very excited to hear it. But the very fact, cause I know Paul and, and Will are, are like the best of buds and the very fact that they respect each other in that way that Will can go, man, you know, you don't need to buy another instrument from me. Have Paul build you something. That 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 that's a lot of respect, and it also it is also indicative of someone who's very comfortable in their own skin. You know. By the way, a shout out to Will Kimball as well because I have heard so many amazing Kimball mandolins. Yeah. I mean, Mike Gugino from the Steep Canyon Rangers. That's his main axe, right. and he's got a lore that Steve Martin gave him to use. Now he doesn't always take the lore because I think he uses it more with. Uh, the Steve Martin gigs, but uh, he loves his Kimball. Absolutely loves it. And uh, same with uh, Josh Rilko just got one. Yep. And it sounds incredible. And Nathan, Nathan, Nathan with Nathan with Mike Cleveland. 
he, he plays one and actually just got a new one because I saw a, a, a video on Facebook of him getting a new F2 from, from Will. And then, of course, Stabman's had a couple. So, um, no, Will, Will's, Will's an incredible builder and, and definitely consider him a brother. And, you know, uh, it, it, it is something that, um, uh, you know, I've been playing Will's instruments since 2004, um, way, way back. Like I had his number 11 A5 and I had an 18 F5. Been playing them a long time and they really have shaped my playing. So that's the other thing too, is that when you have, when you have instruments that really mean something to you, that their tonality connect, that you connect with your tonality, they definitely do influence the way you play. I, um, I love that you play A's and F's as well. If it's a good sounding mandolin, it's a good sounding mandolin. That's all I want to play. The, the, for, to me, the, the, the A that I am most familiar, rather well, than my A, the A I'm most familiar with, like I said early, uh, earlier, that back in the 80s, Hot Rise and Newgrass Revival, two of my big bands, loved Hot Rise dearly, bought all their albums when they came out, ordered them from Elderly Instruments back when they had a hand-drawn catalog, and, you know, just watching Tim play that nugget A, you know? So it, it was, if it's good enough for Tim O'Brien, good enough for me, is kind of a thing, you know? It's, it, it, there, there's no tonal difference between an A and an F. There really, there really is not. So uh, how about strings and picks? I know a lot of listeners love love to know what strings and picks people are using. Um, let's see. Strings-wise on – I can't really tell you what I use on the octave. It's whatever the Diodario set is. Um, for uh, the the regular mandolins, they're almost always GHS, silk and steels uh, is what I use. I, I did put a set of silk and bronze on my A5. It's okay. But um, – I, I played with monowound for a long time, liked the sound of the silken steel, and the silken steel is kind of what I have um, just kind of fallen into the last 20 years. Part of it was is that a long time ago I was having hand problems. This is for people out there with carpal tunnel or some 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 finger issues. Is that the my understanding is is that the GNS GHS uh, silken steels have a, a lower tensile strength. Um, so it's, it, 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 it may not wear out your hand as much as playing like the, you know, the, the, the phosphor bronze, you know, kind of typical bluegrass string. So I did it one for tone because it kind of takes me out of bluegrass, puts me more in that kind of old time blues thing, I think. Uh, but then the other is, um, uh, just trying to protect my left hand a little bit. Uh, as far as, as far as picks, um, they are. Uh, I've got a bunch of old vintage picks. Um, I will use those. But here recently, I have I have started using an Apollo pick, um, uh, the Reichman one. And the reason and the reason for the Reichman one is is that it's smaller. It takes me back years and years and years ago when I would use Golden Gates and then the dog picks, and those tend to be a, a slightly smaller profile. Somewhere along the line, probably influenced by Mike uh, Compton, I started using the Proplex, the larger kind of rounded triangular ones. And that's been the size that like a 1.4 mil is kind of what I've used for a long time, that size of pick. But here recently, I've started going to one that doesn't have a bevel and is smaller. And the reason I've gone for that is is I was really inspired by um, Wayne Benson uh, and Don Julian too. So a lot of love to Don. Don's been doing the camp with me for nine, eight of the 10 years. Um, he had one incredible year with Billy Strings that he couldn't do it. <laughs> I totally get, totally get that. Uh, and, and then he came back on board. But the, um, uh, you know, 
I've talked a lot about Ryan Head and stuff with Don and being a guitar player and someone who, you know, liked the way I sounded. Uh, I never wanted to mess with my right hand, but there did come to be a point in the last year that I'm like, you know what? I am going to really work on my right hand, try to get my speed up where I want in a sense that I can play fast and clean. And so I've done a lot of, I, I, weird for me to say this, I've done a lot of metronome work. That was not my thing before. Uh, a lot of metronome work. And just trying to get that right hand going and finding the right pick grip. Because I do have some weird things with my wrist. It's, it's, I, can't, I can't have that typical kind of like flicking the tea towel kind of, kind of loose wrist. So I've had to kind of play around with pick grip and, and, and wrist position. Uh, but I've started getting it. I've started, you know, working on tunes like Huckleberry Hornpipe and some of these things that have a complicated left hand, complicated right hand. And have found myself, you know... Being more of a traditional, you know, being able to do more of the the fast traditional blue, bluegrass stuff, and this pick helps. What I've what I've discovered is is that a smaller pick, uh, more rounded edge, not no bevel, um, I'm able to get it through the strings a, a lot better. So um, I've actually been working quite a bit on my right hand and and rethinking it, and a lot of that was inspired by. Wayne Benson's YouTube channel, where he, you know, because I think we all know Wayne had a very unique way of picking. Uh, he had kind of like that up or not, it wasn't angled. It was like reverse angled, kind of like the way Reichman plays. And then he, and then, and then he braced the top. It was a very unique way that, that he played. And also his pick grip was like the thumb and two fingers or something like that. Yeah, but but he had a very unique, very unique pick grip, and like I think the beginning of the pandemic or something, he he decided he was going to learn the traditional pick grip and worked on it for six months, and now he plays totally different. And I'm like, if 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 someone like Wayne Benson can take the time and 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 you know rethink the way what he's doing after he was already at that level, I mean, I think we all agree Wayne's an incredible, incredible mandolin player. Um, to rethink that, I'm like, it, it really inspired me to do the same. So I've been playing around with different picks because now I find my my right hand is is different than it used to be. Well, um, let's take this. Let's use this for the um, two more questions left. One is I usually ask yeah. if you had ten minutes a day to work on something, what would you work on? Now, since we're talking right hand, if you just had ten minutes today, and you sound like you've had some success finding some connection. Obviously, it's going to be different for everybody. But, you know, what has helped you if you just had 10 minutes to work on that right hand right now? What would you do? Um, I would probably, like, if I were just sitting there, I would probably just work on a shuffle rhythm. And, uh, you know, and just a dump, the dump, the dump, the dump, the dump, and just keep that going and, and, and move it across all the strings, you know, move it, move it different positions up the fretboard, do it with chords, do it with single strings. I mean, so much, so much of the blues world and really the rock world too, really sits within that shuffle. Um, that to me in some ways, and, that, and that's, that's where I've had to reteach myself some things because I've got a really strong shuffle and I kind of live in that headspace playing linearly and, and having these straight eighth notes or straight 16th notes that, that, that isn't where I've lived, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, um, you know, it, it, it would really be working on the shuffles, the triplets, the blues triplets, those kind of things. Think Monroe, think Compton. Those are the kind of things I'd be working on my right hand to kind of keep those up. And because if I perform out, that's what I'm performing out. I'm not performing, you know, St. Anne's Real. I'm performing a um, bluegrass stomp kind of thing. You know, those kind of things that are going to have a, 
a nice little lope to them and a and a, and a triplety feel. And then this is a twofer because you're not you're not as much of a beer guy as a bourbon guy. So I'm going to ask you for a favorite beer and a favorite bourbon. Um, I think beer that I I was never into them before. I'm starting to get more into like the the Belgian and citrusy beers. Um, and and this is not necessarily a citrusy one, but it is definitely different. Um, I cannot remember the name. I know it's by Dogfish, and it's like Dogfish Salted. Something oh wow. like that. Yeah, so it's it, it's a salted beer that it's supposed to remind you of Lake Michigan. <laughs> so I, I stop, stop. I mean, Lake Michigan isn't salted, so but um, it is cold. <laughs> it is, but yeah, um, it's I can't recall the name of it, um, but it's a it's a salted it's a salted beer by a Dogfish. And then how about bourbon? Uh, bourbon probably the one probably my favorite is one called Jephtha Creed. Um, out of out of northern Kentucky, they use an heirloom an heirloom corn, uh, a blue butcher corn. So their um, their their bourbon has a different look to it. it. It's much. It's almost got like this deeper kind of mahogany look. And I grew up out in the country and very familiar with the smell of barns. It actually kind of smells like a barn. It smells like hay. Smells like straw. Something like it really earthy. Um, so it, it's very unique. It's a, you know, bourbons have to be at least 51% uh, corn. And so it's definitely that, you know, it's got a decent rye content, but it's really got this, this really kind of earthy, earthy taste that you're not going to get out of some other corns because it is a, it's an heirloom corn that, that, you know, was almost an extinction. Uh, but then, you know, uh, for the other, you know, for like, celebrating or something like that, a Blanton's or a Weller's or something like that. One of those typical things, but for sitting around the house, drinking something called the Jephtha Creed. Jim, this has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, man. I, I, I love your attitude. I've loved your videos and playing for years and years. And, and, and also you're pre Patreon. You should, people should go to jimrichter.com and it's only, was it $12 for a year to, to yeah. get access to transcriptions and videos and different things like that. That, that yeah yeah that it, it gives you access to all the tablature i put out some tab for for free um but yeah 12 bucks and that's a dollar a month and you get access to um i think i'm doing two or three transcriptions a month that i'm putting up there perfect well jim thank you for doing the podcast i really appreciate it yeah no thanks for inviting me